I love to tell the story for those who know it best. Oh, I want to know it more, don't you? But for those who know it best, they seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. You don't tire of hearing the good news, right? You don't tire of hearing the good news. And then, in scenes of glory, I'll sing a new, new song. But it'll be the old story that we've been singing all along. Father, thank you this morning that you've allowed us to come here once again, Lord, in this day that you've made. You've given us opportunities, Lord, to sing praises to you. Oh God, you are so worthy. You are so worthy to receive adoration and worship and praise. You alone, God, you alone are worthy to receive. And this morning as we come and approach your word this morning, I pray that we're all reminded, Lord, I know myself so much. I pray that we're reminded of how vital it is how much we desperately need your truth, your holy word. And also, Father, how desperately we need the Holy Spirit to help guide us as we approach understanding your word. That we would be given the ability to see your truth, the ability to hear your truth. God, that you would grant us more faith to believe your truth and God, not only just believe it, but Father, to act upon it. That it would change us today. So Father, thank you again for allowing us to have this time together as we come before you. And Lord, I pray for protection. I pray, that's, I pray that all that is said and shared, Lord, would be from you. And Lord, I pray for discernment for myself and my brothers and sisters and all those who would listen. Help us to see and hear and believe. It's all for your glory, Father. May it always remain such. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, um, I find myself in a sequel. <laughs> and I'll tell you this, Dusty does not in his flesh ever desire to be up here. And I want it to always be like that. I don't want it to ever be, boy, I've got this figured out. I need to let people know how much I know because I don't. I am learning, and I'm praying that God would continue to help me see and, and believe. And if he would choose in his mercy to use this very earthen vessel to convey that, then he is a mighty God. There were, Brother Kenny, like you mentioned, there were some major questions that it seemed like God would was just impressing on my heart. And last week we wrestled with some of those questions, and they're still the same this morning. And they are, are you ashamed of Jesus? Will you deny him? And I like how you brought out another part of it. Is this serious? Which it is. And we were reminded that these questions are based on a warning from Jesus. And we're going to just do a real quick review, and I pray that uh, 
this wouldn't be, oh, I heard this all, I pray that it would just be a reminder. And maybe, maybe something you didn't maybe catch last time, the Spirit will open your eyes to catch this time. Okay, so here's a quick review of uh, the warning that Jesus had given in both Mark and Matthew. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34 through 38, we, we read Jesus, and he says, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever deny, desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, Jesus said this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So are you ashamed of Jesus? Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 33. And again, Christ says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So after hearing Jesus state the consequences for those who are both ashamed of him and who deny him, uh, we begin considering these warnings from Christ. Am I going to be ashamed of him? Will I deny him? I thought, I felt that we should look at them from a couple different perspectives. The first one was from a concerned unbeliever. The second one, the one that we will look at today, is from a deceived, pretending believer. And then the last one, which we will not get to today, from a humble, repentant believer. So from the concerned unbeliever's perspective, we were reminded of these following truths. Number one, we will all one day die and stand before the judgment seat of God. That's in Hebrews 9, 27. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. We were reminded of number two, we will be judged according to our works in light of his holy law, and we, we reviewed that the holy law is the Ten Commandments, and those who are not found in the book of life will be cast into hell. We were reminded of that, and we can read that in Revelations 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, 
by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Serious. Is this serious? This is serious. The third thing, we were reminded that the law, the Ten Commandments, they were given to prove that we are sinners and that we stand guilty before a holy God. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Why? That every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. We saw that the law shows us our need for a Savior, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our teacher, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. We also were reminded that the gospel is the good news that Jesus died to save us from our sins. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love to tell the old story. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, that's a quick summary, right? You might have been going, man, why didn't you just do that last Sunday? Was it like an hour and 20-something minutes? That's a quick summary of that first perspective from a concerned unbeliever as that individual would consider the thought of being ashamed of Jesus and denying him. And the reality is the only hope is faith believing in the gospel message. If an individual is concerned about being ashamed of Jesus, if an individual is concerned about denying Jesus, the only hope is faith by faith alone, believing in the gospel message. That's it. We, we won't get away from it. We won't get away from it today. We won't get away from it from another message down the road, wherever that time, in, at point in time that message might be we will not get away from this truth. And if we do, then I believe we're missing it. Okay? So this morning, we're going to shift our focus to the second perspective. And this is how a deceived, pretending believer might respond to the warnings of Jesus. If you are ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. If you deny me, I will deny you. So the first perspective was 
a concerned unbeliever, they didn't have a clue really of the understanding of what all the conditions were, right? We walk through all of the conditions. We walk through the purpose of the law. We walk through the fact that you can't be justified by the law. We've walked through the necessity of believing by faith, putting your, your faith and your hope solely in Jesus Christ to die for your sins, to make a pen, you know, to pay that penalty for your sin that you can be made right before God and forgiven. That was to, to a very concerned unbeliever. Okay, that's that was the purpose of looking at it from that perspective. Today is different. Today we're looking at the same thing. Am I going to be ashamed of Jesus? Will I deny him? We're looking at it from the perspective of a deceived, pretending believer. Now, first, you may be wondering why try to look at Christ's warnings from this perspective? Well, I believe it's important because Jesus describes many such individuals like this. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. And rather than just pluck the section out, we're going to read the context, okay? This is from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching. Okay, picture this, because this happened. Christ is at, on the Mount People are around him. He is proclaiming the kingdom of God and what it's like. But in that teaching, he's, he's interweaving realities that are coming that can only be fulfilled through him. Okay? So that's, that's the perspective that we're coming from this morning. A deceived, pretending believer, because they do exist. What does Christ have to say about that? Does this matter? Yes, it does. Let's read this together. Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them, how? By their fruits. We're going to talk more about that. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me that in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus' response, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall. For it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Now, if my kids were here with me this morning, I know Michael is, probably in his mind he's thinking of family Bible time and, and singing, the wise man built his house upon the rock, do, 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 right? That's a good song. Do you see where it fits in? It is right in context with Christ saying, there's going to be individuals who say, Lord, Lord, haven't I done all these things in your name? And Christ is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. From his teachings, Jesus shows us that many, did you catch that word? That many will profess to be believers on judgment day but will be told to depart from him. Now this depart from him, guys, that's not a light thing. What does that mean? On the day of judgment, if Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, what does that mean? Say it. It means eternal judgment in hell. These are people who profess Jesus as Lord and recount all the many works they have done in his name, yet their end is destruction. Now, does that cause you to stop and question? Maybe this question comes to mind. So, an individual who's convinced that they are in a right standing with God can be deceived to such an extent that in reality they are still under the condemnation of their sins and will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire? Is that, does that, mind, that come to mind? Is that what you're telling me, Dusty? No. That's what Jesus is telling you. Right about now you're probably thinking, man, last week was nothing. Is this serious? Does it matter? It does matter. Now remember, we're looking at this from a deceived, pretending believer's perspective. And you might be saying, but, wh but what about me? How do I know that I'm not one of those who are being deceived? Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then Jesus said, I'll declare them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. When you hear Jesus say that, is there anything in you that has the concern of, Jesus, are you going to say that to me? Because there are many who think not. There are many who believe they're fine. They think everything is fine. And they are deceived. So, if you're one of those who right now are saying, how do I know that I'm not one of those who are being deceived? How do I know? First, 
Praise God if you were even concerned about considering this frightening reality. Right? Is it bad to consider this? As a professing believer, is it bad to stop, is it bad to pause and to consider on the day of judgment? Jesus said there are few who find the narrow gate. There are many who go the broad path. And there are many who on that day will profess him as Lord and recount all the things they did in life for him and they are going to be sent to hell. Is it bad right now to consider, is that you? Did you know that questioning and examining one's faith is a vital aspect of a believer's assurance? Did you know that? I praise God that that is known here. I praise God for that. I hope that it has been heard here. Okay? I pray that there's not anyone sitting here that God has brought to our fellowship today that has been deceived into thinking that they don't need to examine themselves. And if you are one of those individuals that up to this point, you've never even once considered that on the day of judgment, Jesus said many will profess him, but he's going to say, I never knew you. You need to examine. This is not ah, whatever happens, happens. This is eternal. This is eternal consequences right here, folks. Brothers and sisters, it does not get more real than this. So we are called to examine our faith, to examine what we believe to be true, to examine where we place our hope and confidence. And that's not just me saying that. That's the word. Let's look to the word together. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Do you see the warning? Do you see the warning there? The call? to examine yourself, to test yourself, to see if you truly are in the faith. You claim that you're in the faith, but are you really? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. You're going, yes. If you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Why did he put that in there? Because that happens. I forgot to mention this at the very beginning, but I just ask, brothers and sisters, as, as we work through this together, I know that I did not get all of the verses that pertain to what we're talking to right now. So be sensitive. to If the Spirit brings... Verses to mind, be ready to share those later on when we have an opportunity to discuss them, okay? Because I know I did not get everything, okay? So just be mindful of that. So this one again, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, Moreover, moreover brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, the good news 
which also you received and in which you stand. That's how we're saved. We believe by faith, right? By which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And then another one, the last one I have in a call to examine, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Paul is saying to the Philippian believers, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Later on, not today, you can look at it right there if you're there already. Verse 13 helps clarify that from a believer's perspective. But 12 right now, I think, suits well the perspective we're looking at from a deceived, pretending believer's perspective. Okay, We are called to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, work out, what does that mean? That means to consider to wrestle with, to examine the truth of the word, to examine the realities of my life and what's really happening in me and what I'm presenting and see if it's so, see if it's real. So we're called to examine and test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We are called to beware of an evil heart of unbelief. We are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, some may have the thought rising up in themselves. Now, wait just a minute. Wait just a minute. I went to an altar when I was younger. I repeated a prayer, and I was told that I'm saved and that any doubt about my salvation is just the devil attacking and trying to deceive me. Does that mentality exist? Yes, it does. Now, can God work through somebody obediently humbling themselves to go forward to an altar and somebody who is very, very young in the, in the beginnings of the faith, not really knowing even how to cry out to God? Can, can they have a believer sharing the truth with them and then, and then them saying a prayer and it be real? Yes, it can. But just because someone says and repeats a prayer doesn't make it real. Just because someone says, you are now saved, does that make you saved? And just because you might have promptings in your soul to really stop and examine, am I really, am I really saved? Right now as I consider the reality that Jesus says that on the day of judgment, there's going to be many people who stand before him that say they know him, but they don't. And he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew. And they are going to be sent to eternity in hell. If I hear that, and in me, I've got this, I've got this sense of, well, I, what am I, is this real? What do I really believe? Am I one of those who are deceived? If you're wrestling with thoughts like that, is that the, necessarily the enemy trying to poke holes in your statement of faith? 
Now, the reality is we do have an enemy, Satan, who seeks to deceive us and accuse us about our salvation. Now, the reality is our salvation experience doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's not that I repented on once on a certain day. It's examining to see if I'm still drawn to repentance. Because of the recognition of my daily battle with sin, my flesh, and this fallen world. But this individual, this one, not just one, the many that Jesus tells us of that will stand before him, these individuals are deceived. They are. And they're pretending like they're living a Christian life because of the way they present themselves to people around them. All these things they're doing in the, in the Lord's name. So let's look back at these deceived, pretending believers that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7. Did you notice what they gave for their justification? Did you notice what they said that should make it all okay before Jesus? Listen to what they say in Matthew 7, 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? So what did these people do? They were trying to justify themselves by the works that they had done. You see it? But what does the word say about our justification? What does the word say? Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Do you see it? Okay, if you stand before the judgment throne, nothing you say about what you've done in this life is going to justify you before God. Nothing. By the works of the law, no flesh, no human being will be made right, will be justified before God by the things that they've done. Do you see it? So, do works play a part in examining our faith? An assurance of salvation? Are we, are we completely discounting what our actions are here? Are we just saying, by faith, by faith that we believe in Christ, and it's not by the works of the law, just by faith, everything's okay? Do works play a part in examining our faith and assurance of salvation? They do. Now, some people might see this as conflict, but it's not. It's a needed aspect of our examining our faith. Listen to what James describes the importance of works in a believer's life. Listen how he exam how we, uh, displays that here. This is in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. Now, we're countering this with the deceived unbelievers' perspective of 
didn't we do this in your name, God? Didn't we do this in your name, right? That was their justification before God, right? And, I, and right now we're kind of stepping back and examining as believers, does works have a, a vital part to play in our assurance of, am I truly saved or am I one of those who's deceived? Does examining works have a part to play here? James is going to say, yes, it certainly does. So listen to what James says. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. By the way, who is James? It's the brother of Christ, right? The half-brother. This guy grew up with Jesus. Can you imagine that? What a perspective, right? Anyway, James 2, 14 through 26. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Wow, lays it out right there, right? What does it profit if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I, James says, will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Is there a difference there? You believe that there's one God. Now, we as believers, we as, one, we as individuals who put our hope and trust and faith in God, we believe, right? But we don't believe in the same context of what the demons believe. We believe that Jesus paid the price and the penalty for our sins. There's no way apart from him to the Father. We believe that. That's not the same belief that demons have. But James is making the point out here, you believe that there's one God. Even the demons believe that. There's something more is the point that he's trying to make here. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, do you want to know <laughs> that faith without works is dead? Do you want to know it? This is an ultimate reality to James, right? He's asking these individuals, do you want to know? Do you want to know? Oh, foolish man, that faith without works is dead. He's going to provide some proof. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? That was faith. God had told him to do that. If Abraham would not have responded in faith by works, laying his son up on that altar, right? Would that faith have been real? Hmm. Do you see that faith was working together with his works? Not separate, together. And by works, faith was made perfect. Do you see that through this example of Abraham and Isaac? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. So that's one example he gives. Likewise, James says, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? 
She acted. She sent the messengers out another way. If she had not acted, then she wouldn't have believed that she would have been saved. Right? Just another example. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So James is telling us works are important. They're very important. Okay? If you say and you claim that you have faith, but there's no proof of that by your actions, your faith is what? What's he say? He said it's dead. He said it's, it's not real. It's not legit. It's not something that's going to stand the test at the judgment seat of God. It's going to be along those lines of individuals that say, look at all these things, God, look. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more here because those people did present some works, didn't they? So James remind us, reminds us that just the act of saying we have faith in Jesus to save us from our sins shouldn't alone give us confidence that we are saved. That's the point of him bringing this out, why works are so important, why faith without works is dead. Can't get any, more, any clearer from James' perspective, right? James says that faith coupled with works is necessary for assurance of salvation. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh, wait a minute. I thought you said that we are saved by faith alone. And now you're saying that it's not just faith, but it's also linked to works. How's that not contradicting itself? Have you ever wrestled with this? Is there a conflict? There's not a conflict. A lot of times people think, well, Paul's perspective was this, James' perspective was that, and how do they gel? It's not contradicting itself. I think one of the clearest scriptures that shows how this reality is necessary in the life of a believer is found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Okay? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? Faith is the gift. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift. Okay? And why? It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. God grants that gift of faith so that you can't say in pride, look what I did. Right? Faith is a gift. And we can't boast about it because it's a gift he gives. Do you see it? Okay. So faith, we are saved through faith. By the grace of God, we are saved through faith that he gives us. And we can't boast about it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see how they're coupled together? We are saved by faith, which is the gift of God that we would believe, but then it's not just faith alone. God has works prepared for us. Can it get clearer than that? Faith apart from works is what? dead. In a believer's life, if we claim that we have faith and we're not examining our works, which we should have, is there something going on there? Is that a problem? Is that an issue? That is the path of deception, brothers and sisters. 
an individual who's convinced that they say they have faith because they believe, because they prayed, and then they don't examine their life? That's an individual who will likely stand before God because Jesus said, most people. Few find the narrow way. Most go the broad way. Even most who claim to be Christians, if they claim they have faith, yet all it is is a profession of faith, and it's not backed by works that accompany it, they need to examine. That's why we're called to examine. So we are saved by grace through faith, which is a gift of God. We aren't saved by works, which are our outward actions. Otherwise, we'd be prideful. We would think we could earn our salvation. And there are so many people caught up on that, thinking that their salvation is dependent on their works to make them right before God. That's not it either. Our works, and this, was a, this is a short sentence, and I hope, it's, I hope it's concise and clear, but listen to this. Our works reflect an outworking of God's inner working in the heart of a believer. Check that. Our works that James says we must have, right? Our works reflect an outworking of God's inner working in the heart of a believer. God's inner working in our heart is granting us faith to believe in him doing that work in us. The outworking of that are those works that prove to us that God is doing a work in here. Does that make sense? Now, does this hold true in regards to the deceived, pretending believers that Jesus spoke of in Matthew earlier? Because you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I thought that these people had plenty of works, right? Let's go back and look at that. Matthew 7, 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? It is true that they, they had the appearance of good works, right? But listen to how Jesus reveals the true heart of what motivates them. He doesn't leave us hanging here, folks. Matthew 7, 23, the next verse and then Jesus says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Do you see it? It's not about the outward display of look at all the good, righteous things that I've done. It's not just about that. That's what these people were placing their hope in, right? Lord, Lord, look at all these things I've done. Christ says, depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because all your works? No. Depart from me because you who practice lawlessness. That's the real heart issue there. Okay? These individual, individuals live lives of lawlessness, meaning they live for their own selfish desires. At the root, they are condemned sinners living a life of hypocrisy. 1 John 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And that's exactly what Christ said they were doing. He said, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, 
How can we know that we aren't like the ones mentioned by Jesus who say, Lord, Lord, yet ultimately are deceived, pretending believers? Now, one test that Jesus brings out is in his teaching. Okay, that's why I read that whole context from Matthew 7. And this is, this is one way to know. Christ, again, he doesn't leave us wondering. Okay, he says in verse 16 through 20, you will know them by their fruits, okay? By their works, by, by the way they present themselves. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. What are the fruits you're displaying? Is all that's being displayed in your life, your works, your fruit, is all that's being displayed lawlessness and sin? Now, I'm not speaking of a believer's battle with the flesh because that's going to happen. We are going to battle the flesh every day while we're still yet here until God brings us to glory. We're going to battle, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm speaking of a lifestyle of sin. Are your works displaying the fruit of sin, of lawlessness? I didn't put this in here. I just, I, I forgot to put it in here, but... Are there some other individuals that Jesus confronted that present themselves in a manner that truly is deceitful? Who did Jesus Christ call hypocrites? The Pharisees, right? He said, you whitewashed tombs. Remember that? They have the outward appearance of righteousness, but inward, they are dead men's bones. Now, to everyone around them, they appeared holy, right? They acted in a manner that was perceived to be holy. But standing before the judgment seat of God, that doesn't hold water, right? He knows. So as you're examining yourself, and right now we're talking about what is what is the fruit that's being displayed in my life? From the perspective of a deceived, pretending believer, I pray that God would be showing them, you might be thinking you're acting good by doing these things, but you really know what's going on inside because my spirit is making it known to you. And I pray that even right now, that everyone sitting here would be considering what is being displayed in your life. And you might have the perspective of, well, I think everything that I'm displaying is really good. Are you being deceived? Is what you're counting on as good works truly filthy rags before God? Are your works displaying the fruit of the Spirit working in your life? Because that, to me, that, what I'm seeing is an assurance right? Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Is this 
being made evident in your life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. When you examine, do you see that? Do you see that as a practice of life in you? Now, what about an individual that said, well, I, pay, I prayed that prayer, and that person told me that I'm saved. What about that person? What about the individual who's placing their hope on someone else's assurance? That is a scary place to be. But I'm telling you right now, if you have not examined yourself, if you've not tested yourself to see if you truly are of the faith, if you've not worked out your own salvation with fear and trembling, you very, very well might be relying on the assurance of somebody else to tell you you're okay. And let me let you know this, God has never given that responsibility to anyone other than himself. Has the Spirit given you assurance that you are saved? Romans chapter 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So as we are wrestling with this ultimate reality, because we know that it's been appointed for man once to die, right? And then face judgment. And we know from today that Jesus taught that there will be individuals standing before him on that judgment day that will profess to be his and claim works that they've done to justify why they are his. And he's going to say, depart from me, I've never known you. Did the Spirit ever assure these individuals that they were His? Could not have happened. Okay? That could not have happened because this is truth. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God assures His children. Do you believe that? He says he does. And you might, be, you might be thinking, has God ever assured me? You need to be thinking that. You need to be thinking that. If all you're resting in is the decision you made at whatever point in time in the past that makes you okay with God, and there's been no fruit of the Spirit working in your heart, there's been no assurance from the Spirit that you are His, you're basing it on a lie. You're basing it on a deception. And there is no assurance there. And some are going to ask, well, well, how do I know? How do I know that the Spirit has assured my Spirit that I'm His? God will make it known. And if, if he has not made it known to you, ask him to make it known to you. Pray that he will make it known to you. Don't rest until he makes it known to you. And if he does not make it known to you, cry to him, cry out to him, call upon him, trust in his promises, Believe and have hope in Jesus and Christ alone and His atonement for your sins. It goes back to the gospel. If the Spirit has not assured you 
that that work of faith is real in your heart, don't rest. Don't rest. Don't be assured of anything apart from this truth because He will assure you. And here's another thing. Because we're examining, right? We're trying to examine works. We're trying to really stop and consider is what I am claiming real? Is, is what I'm believing and putting my hope in, is it real? And I'm, and I'm thinking this way because the Word of God tells me to think this way. It tells me to examine myself, to test myself to see if I'm in the faith. It tells me to not have a wicked heart of unbelief. It tells me to um, work out my salvation with fear and trembling. It tells me to do this. Are you going to listen to the Word of God? Are you going to listen to some false assurance that you've received from somebody in your past? Another check that we can see in the Word that is true. Do you ever experience the discipline of God? Well, what is that? Well, let's look to the Word together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 11. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have come to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, We've all been at that point in our lives where we were left to ourselves. But there was a time in your life, if you truly are His, that God regards you as a true son. And if you are a true son or daughter, He does bring discipline in our lives. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now you might ask, does God discipline me? What's, what's that mean? That means that if we are truly God's and we choose to walk down a path of sin, that God is not going to leave us there. Okay? That means that God in his love, he will bring about discipline. And whatever, whatever form and fashion that he deems best. Okay? But what we can know about it is it seems painful rather than pleasant. And I think that's putting it nicely. But that is the goodness of God. So another check in your life to see if you truly are one who's deceived and pretending to be a Christian is, has God brought about discipline in your life? 
not just for discipline's sake, but to bring you to the point of coming back to Him. Is God drawing you to repentance? Or are you left storing up His wrath for the day of judgment? This is one of the last verses, guys, in trying to consider this. But listen to how this reads out of Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 11. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Did you catch that? Why would we be brought to repentance? Because of the goodness of God. Because of the goodness of a father who would discipline his son or daughter. But in accordance with your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation or wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. So, is God in his goodness drawing you to repentance? Even as we're considering these things right now. And this is, I understand that this is very heavy. It should be. I'm trying to think, what are, what are the more consequential thoughts than what we've been weighing through the last two Sundays? I mean, I know there's difficulties in life, but if it comes down to, are you truly a believer or not? What are the consequences of that? If it comes down to, are you deceived and only pretending to be a believer? And what are the consequences of that? Does it get more real than this? Is God shining light on your deceived, pretending Christian life and revealing the judgment that's to come? If so, praise God. He is one who draws to repentance. It's his work. He's the one who gives the gift of faith to believe. And then along with that gift of faith to believe, he's the one who has good works that we would walk in those works so that it would be evidence to us of what the Spirit is doing in our hearts and transforming us into the likeness of Christ. Do we see that in our life? Do you see that in your life? Right now, if God says, your appointed time is now. Because we were reminded that every man has an appointed time. Every man will face death, God says, and then the judgment. Even if that happens right now, are you ready? And I know that this might seem like, man, but remember, we're looking at this from the perspective of someone who's deceived. Someone who has lived their lives 
possibly lived their life all the way up to this point in their life right now in church. Lived their life, their whole life up to this point till now, thinking that everything's okay. But it's not. And if that's the case for you, I pray that the Spirit is speaking to you and He's revealing truth to you and He's causing you to examine if you stand before me, are you going to be one of the many that I say, depart from me, I never knew you because you thought you were doing all the right things. You thought you were handling and conducting yourself in such a manner that people thought you were okay, but I know better. I see deeper. God knows our hearts even better than we do. And he knows. He knows if we're just living a facade or if we truly are a new creation in him. And we are going to be talking about that assurance next Sunday. But right now, this Sunday is a wake-up call. And what's the answer to that wake-up call? It's the same as what we talked about last Sunday. If God convicts us of sin and makes us aware of our sin and makes us aware that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of God condemned to hell, if he makes that aware to us, and then he grants us a heart of repentance. He grants us the faith to believe the hope of the gospel, the faith to believe that, yes, Jesus, Jesus was the Son of God, and he did come. He lived the perfect life I can't, and he died in my place on the cross. If he gives us the faith to believe that it's only by Christ alone, Jesus says, I'm the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. I know there's no other way. I know there's no work that I can do that's going to make me right before God. I know there's no other way. I know that. And I know that it's only through Jesus. And I do believe. I believe that on the cross, Jesus bore my sins, all of my sins, all of the, the wrath, the judgment that God the Father has toward me. I believe Jesus took it. I believe he took it to the cross. And I believe he drank every last drop of wrath that the Father has towards me. I believe that. If God's giving you that faith to believe, you have just reason to have hope. Right? Because your hope isn't in, well, I just made this decision. Although we will decide, right? We will. We will have this point where we have to agree. We have to just say, yes, it is real. I believe it. There's no other hope but apart from him. I believe in the gospel message. I know that it's true. I know that it is. And when it comes to that judgment seat day and I stand before him, there's nothing. There's nothing that I can bring before him. There's nothing that I can point to in my life that's going to justify myself before him because apart from Christ, I am nothing. Apart from Christ, I deserve punishment. Apart from him, I am undone. But I will proclaim that Christ was crucified for me, and I believe it. I believe in the shed blood of Christ. I believe that he's forgiven me for my sins because he is good. I believe it. That's my hope. That's what I'm banking all of my existence, my eternal existence on, on Christ alone. That's faith. Brothers and sisters, that's a faith that will not be shaken. That's a faith not in and of ourselves. That's a faith in Him, a work that He's done, a faith that He's promised to continue to do in us. That's a taste of what's going to be discussed next Sunday because there's a very real opportunity that may be coming for all of us. 
where we're going to be given a chance to respond of if, are we ashamed of Jesus as his purchased possession? Are we ashamed of him? Will I deny him? Is there anything in this life, anything in this life, any circumstance that I could be placed in, and you know the horrors that we've seen exist in this world, and they are many. If I'm placed in the most horrific situation, and I'll let your mind pop that out, whatever it might be, whatever choice you might have to make, if I'm placed in that position, will I deny him? And there are believers who really wrestle with that. But brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you there is great hope for a believer in that situation. And Lord willing, that's what we will discuss next Sunday. And, but I didn't want to miss what today was about. Because I don't want someone who is deceived into thinking that they're okay. I don't want someone to grasp onto hope when hope has not been extended to them because they're, they're basing their hope on their works that they've done. They're basing their hope on a faith that has never been examined. And if you find yourself in that place, oh may God have mercy. And in mercy, that's why we have the gospel. That's why we have the good news. Is because we serve a, a merciful God. So let's look to him together. Father, we give you thanks for the morning. Lord, thank you for the time we've had in your word. And God, I, I trust, Lord, that your spirit has moved and it will continue to move as people would take time to go back and examine your word, examine your scriptures, Lord. And, and even maybe if, if your spirit has stirred in hearts today to bring out other scriptures, God, that I didn't see or wasn't reminded of this morning, then, then thank you. But God, I pray, I pray for everyone here and everyone who would be listening. If they find themselves in the position of questioning, am I really right with God? Jesus, when I stand before you, are you going to cast me away? Are you going to tell me to depart into eternal damnation and hell? if there are people who are concerned about that. I pray, Jesus, I pray that your Holy Spirit would shine light into darkness. That you would give the gift of faith to believe that an individual might know more than they have ever known what it means to cast their cares upon you and to rest in the completed work of Jesus and his death on the cross. So we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for your promises. And Father, we just ask, we ask for more faith that we might believe more and more and more 
of your precious promises and truths. Thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.